The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. How have you been? How are you managing this transition in Washington? You know, there's a lot of opportunity, just kind of chomping at the bit to get started. That's Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, and I couldn't agree more. With the new administration forging ahead on a wide-ranging and ambitious slate of reforms, and with my own election fast approaching, I'm feeling galvanized by the opportunity to deliver fresh perspectives and real change. So on today's show, in honor of Women's History Month, I'm kicking off a series of conversations with fearless female leaders who I look to for guidance and inspiration. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, and this is Hearing. Throughout this month, I'm excited to share some powerful conversations I've been having with women on the front lines of some of the most critical battles in the fight for a more equitable criminal justice system. You're going to hear moving stories and innovative policy ideas on issues ranging from immigrant safety to LGBTQIA rights and a survivor-focused holistic approach to cases of domestic violence and sexual assault. But to start off this series, I was thrilled to sit down with Senator Gillibrand for a reflection on the profound impact that women's perspectives can have on policy and the persistent challenges of sexism that we have to overcome. 
you know, I, I wonder, as we are still very early in reflecting on the divisions of the last four years and all of the fires that the president started, you know, for me and I think for many people, one of the moments that stood out in a sea of insults and provocations was that really sexist tweet that the president directed against you. And we don't have to rehash it here, you know, other than to say that he basically he, called me a prostitute. Yes. Well, I, I couldn't even, I just couldn't. He, he I couldn't did. say that. Basically was um, implying, which is pretty outrageous uh, and, I, and terrible when you have young boys. I mean, Right. Well, so I wanted to ask you, you know, as a human being, like, how did that make you feel for for it to be about you? I mean, every woman in, in politics experiences some of this in a, I would say, a milder way. Th- that was really shocking. It was shocking. It was inappropriate. It was harmful. It was a, a misuse of his power and his platform. You know, if we had social media companies that actually cared they would have done something about that then. There has to begin to be some oversight over social media and over right-wing media that proclaims it to be truth and proclaims it to be facts, but in fact is all opinion. And, you know, when you um, say something that's obviously false and to be able to do so with whatever million followers he had at the time, I think is problematic and um, have the weight of his uh, reach he just was doing a, a gender slur and he did it with the purpose of harming me and my credibility. And I think he should have been held accountable and he wasn't. And so I hope that we can take the lessons of the last four years and begin to govern better because we've let these platforms have barely any oversight or accountability and it's harmed the country. It has perceivably changed the nature of the climate in America because hate has been allowed to fill airwaves that can be distributed to millions of people immediately. Kirsten, what did you say to your sons about that tweet? If so I, I just ask. didn't mention it. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mention it. Uh, and what I was upset that day and Henry, who was, I think maybe 10 or nine, he just said, mommy, why are you so upset today? I was like, well, you know, the president said something mean about mommy. He said, he said what, what did he say, mommy? What did he say? I was like, well, he said I was doing a bad job and I just don't agree. So <laughs> I just really avoided it. I think the older boy who was probably 14 at the time, um, he, he may or may not know about it, but he didn't ask me about it. So I just didn't talk about it. So, you know, you and, and my children, I mean, Theo is now 17 um, and Henry is now 12. And they understand that politics is a bit of a blood sport. They do get that this is a rough and tumble type job and people are attacking. You know, they, they understood that early on when every you know two years as a House member and every six years as a senator, I had to run for office again. And I just remember walking with Theo, actually, and he was young. He was like, uh, he was probably about 10. And I said, well, yeah, mommy has to run for reelection and, um, and I have to ask the voters of New York state if they want to hire me for this job. And he said, well, well, mom, is somebody running against you? I was like, yeah, someone is running against me. Well, why are they running against you? And what do they say? I was like, oh, well, we disagree on everything. You know, she doesn't believe in women's rights. She doesn't believe in gay rights. She doesn't believe like we just would tick through all these different views. 
And Theo was just like, oh, well, you better win, mommy. You better win. But he was shocked to know that I could lose my job in a year or two, whatever it was, and that this was a competitive opportunity for his mother. One of the things I did to prepare for running for office was to show my kids some negative ads from, uh, you know, like the presidential campaign. And I picked gentle ones, but I wanted them to understand that people will say things about you that are not true and even about people you like. Right. And I think that they've absorbed. But I do sometimes wonder what else they're absorbing just from living with a parent who is engaged in these really hard issues. Like last night, I was very startled by this. My, I was putting my nine-year-old to bed and she asked me if I could only do something about gun violence or sexual violence. And she used the words sexual violence. Which would I choose? Which is worse? And wow. I thought, oh my goodness. They're really both I'm, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, they're horrible so. but like, right, they're both horrible is the answer. So I gave what I think is the right answer to, to my nine-year-old constituent. But I think we're living through a really hard time. And to even to pose it that way, like does she, maybe they understand that there is just so much to take on right now. I wanted to ask you, because I've heard you talk about your grandmother so much. What do you think she would advise, have advised you to do when the president tweeted that? Oh, she would have said, punch him back, punch him back <laughs> swiftly and don't stop, <laughs> which is what I did. So I was struck by the story that I once heard you tell. You were talking about being considered for the appointment to the Senate when Hillary Clinton had vacated that seat. And you described pausing in the middle of your interview with then Governor Patterson to express your, you know, your empathy and to just tell him how sorry you were about the way that he had been mocked recently on Saturday Night Live. Well, um, I was actually quite appalled. I thought, why would you make fun of the first black governor who has a disability for his disability? I, I couldn't actually believe that in this day and age, somebody thought that was funny. And I didn't think it was funny. I thought it was really inappropriate and and mean. And, you know, at the time, the governor was just finding his sea legs. Like the last thing he needed was the popular kids to be making fun of him. And that's what it felt like to me. And so I just said, you know, I'm really sorry that they chose to make fun of you. And, And he said, oh yeah, my staff just say brush it off. And I said, you know, I don't think you should brush it off. I think you should say something. And I think you should say something because think of how many other people who live with disabilities who don't have your platform and don't have your stature who could never stick up to bullies. And I said, you should just say something and say it's not right. And that, you know, because I don't think it's right. And I think they need to know that what they did is wrong. And, and for whatever reason, it made him feel much better because I think his staff didn't quite understand that that's the kind of thing you shouldn't brush off. I like that story very much because for me, it it's of a piece with, I think, a lot of your work where you seem to me very quick to identify who is the unpopular kid and, you know, in this scenario, whose feelings have not been acknowledged and then to make that your cause, right? And your fight for justice. So you have done this as a champion for LGBTQ plus people in the military and elsewhere, uh, for veterans, for women who have reported harassment in the workplace. And I wonder if you could say some more about where that instinct comes from to identify with people's vulnerability and 
to build your work on it? Mm, well, I'm a, um, a Catholic and a Christian and I, you know, we are always called to help the least among us. And if you look at Christ's life, he literally spent almost all his time with the most marginalized people, whether it was prostitutes or people with diseases or blind people or the tax collector who was considered the biggest outcast. He always spent time speaking for the voiceless or helping those who had no power in society. And so it's definitely part of my upbringing, but also my faith. I think that's what my job is. You know, I think that, you know, being called to public service, um, having the platform I do, I think that my time and my voice can best be used lifting up those who aren't being listened to and lifting up those who don't have power. And when you carry voices and they are heard by those in power, you're doing your job. Yeah. You know, uh, as I am now running for office, I find that it it centers me to even just picture in my mind's eye, you know, who is the person that I'm fighting for and it's not always the same person, but often I, I just close my eyes and I see, you know, a woman of color who is not a citizen. So she's afraid of approaching the criminal justice system. And she's been the victim of domestic abuse and she needs us to reach out to her. Uh, you know, I, I also see in you, uh, a certain kind of ruthlessness, and I mean that as the highest compliment, actually, or uh, stubbornness in once you've identified an injustice that needs to be taken on or a, a wrong that needs to be righted, that you you work with a lot of determination. I think that that's why you are so productive. And I wonder if you could speak a bit about how these two instincts we've identified, your empathy and your determination have worked in the last four years in Washington, where there's been such a misogynistic culture and um, all of this is so much more complicated for a woman with power. Yes, I agree. That has been complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a great deal of misogyny in the world, a great deal of gender bias in the world. And through empathy, you can find common ground and you can find common ground with anybody. Um, I work with Ted Cruz. <laughs> I work with Rand Paul. I work with Mitch McConnell, which is shocking because I disagree with them on so many levels, on so many issues, but there's always an opportunity for bipartisanship. For example, when I wanted to help the horse racing industry, I'm actually, I have a Saratoga glass this morning <laughs> and I wanted to help stop the death of horses because they were doping them up before races and using medicines that weren't right and I was able to work with Mitch McConnell on that because he's represents Kentucky. So, so empathy takes you a long way because there are shared problems and shared worries and shared fears in all people. And everyone cares about their children. Everybody wants a better job to be able to uh, provide for their kids. And so that's, that's the sweet spot. That's the, that's the shared values that we have to govern on. So if you are putting yourself in other people's shoes often, you can then see where you have things in common. And then the determination kicks in with, you just don't let it go. Like once you've got your bipartisan core, you just keep pushing your issue and asking people to pay attention, asking people to please 
let you vote on it, to please include it in the next package, to please, you know, you have to be incessant. And you're talking about bipartisanship as looking for shared interests, not as a kind of compromise, which I think is often how it is portrayed as a giving up of your values. Do you feel like you have to give up things in order to, you know, work with those who disagree? No. So if they're not going to agree that women deserve to be paid equal for equal work, we're just not going to agree. If they believe that air and water should be polluted for the benefit of a company, we're not going to agree. But we might be able to agree on different tax credits for companies that are willing to invest in green energy. There we go. So there's going to be places where we will not agree. And those are our core values that you don't compromise on. But there are ideas and and ways of helping people that can be agreed on. And is there something particular you think that needs to be done or asserted uh, to to somehow respond to the way women were talked about in the last four years, you know, in sort of that change in atmosphere? Or are, are you able to just sort of come back to, you know, just continuing determined to do the work? Yeah. Well, what the, do we have to fix? I guess I'm asking. It, when it comes to gender bias and gender violence, um, that is as prevalent now as it's ever been. And it's only grown. The same is true with racism and bigotry. And it has grown under Trump because he basically poured fuel on a fire that had always been burning. We have to make sure that people who are public servants understand that this is domestic terrorism. And so we have to designate it as such and then do a better job communicating that to people so they understand, you know, if they're being misled by a website or a group or, you know, any place that that they're being led down a, a, a path that is so damaging, destructive, and filled with lies. I agree with that. And I think that it it's important to say out loud what makes hate crimes. And I think of domestic terrorism as a variant of hate crimes different from just the underlying violence, because I, it goes past, you know, the immediate victims and has the effect of Correct. terrorizing entire groups of people exactly. and and inhibiting entire communities. Uh, and that's why it has to have a different status in the mind of a prosecutor, in the mind of a legislator. Right. Yeah. To say that you are you are hurting so many more people yes. um, with and these you're acts. carrying the country apart. I mean, the division that has been created under President Trump is so harmful. And it's one of the reasons why President Biden ran on this notion that he wants to heal the soul of America, that he actually wants to do the hard work. But that's going to take education. It's going to take legislation to define um, white supremacy as a domestic terrorist ideology, whatever, whatever the right terminology is. So we're going to try to do that work in the Senate. Right. And to give prosecutors the investigative tools they need in order to be able to pursue it. It's going to be part of the DOJ. And uh, I know several people who are committed to getting that done. Can you tell us a bit about what is sort of your agenda right now? Um, uh, Like, what are some of the things that you want to fight for in this new, this new chapter? Well, right now, the most urgent crisis is obviously getting COVID relief into my state and into the whole country. I want to focus on paid leave. The fact that if we'd had paid leave as a country when this pandemic hit, less people would have lost their jobs. People would have been able to take off the time to be home with their kids when they were remote learning without losing their job or their place in that job or their income. They wouldn't have had to make those terrible, tough choices that have really harmed particularly women. If you look at the statistics from December, 
there were 140,000 net jobs lost. And if you add all the ones that were gained and all the ones that were lost, that net number is women and mostly women of color. So we are bearing the brunt of this pandemic in such, in such a horrible way because women won't regain their earning potential or their earning capacity probably for decades. And and if I may just, just spin that out, this enormous hit that women have taken, and I'm so glad that you have highlighted it, will reverberate into other things like women in leadership, right? I mean, yeah, it it is worrisome. And hopefully uh, women will continue to want to run for office like yourself and women all across the state and all across the country so that we can continue to support women in leadership. I think Kamala Harris being our vice president is an inspiration for the globe. The fact that we have our first black woman and our first Asian American woman matters. It absolutely matters. Just to have her be in such a position where she can use all of her experience and all of her uh, ideas to the greater good, I think is a gift. It's a gift to the country. It's a gift to the world. And I'm just so grateful that not only did she aspire to it, but that she was given the opportunity to do it. Young people can see you can be anybody you want to be. You just have to aspire to it and then work really, really hard and try to achieve it. And that there's nothing wrong with big ambitions and uh, big dreams. As I listen to you, I think I believe that men love their children just as much as women do. But I never hear male leaders uh, say that. Say that. Just say it out loud. Like, why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, that those are some of the unique gifts that we bring to the table, and that's why I so desperately want more women in leadership. I want to get us to fifty-one percent of people in Congress. I want to have more governors, more mayors, and a president that's a woman sooner than later. And so, I just think that the talents and the experiences and the perspectives that we bring to the decision-making table are unique and are powerful. And so I just want more of those ideas and uh, perspectives to be represented better. You, you talked about uh, the vice president and I, I'm over the moon, as are you. And yet I, I keep coming back to this idea that's been, I think it's been top of mind in New York because we're going to have ranked choice voting in our municipal elections for the first time, although not in the district attorney's race that the data shows that ranked choice voting is particularly beneficial to female candidates because so many people can envision a woman as a number two, like shoot, (laughs) but not as a number one. (laughs) And and it sort of capitalizes on that. And so I just share that, that I'm frustrated uh, that, you know, it's not enough, number two, you know? But we'll get there, I promise. In our lifetime, Tali, we will see a woman president Okay, so this is our bet. There will be a woman governor, a mayor, and a president within a decade. And it's going to happen. And the reason why leadership matters for those, for your wonderful male listeners, is that um, it's not that you guys aren't doing a great job, because you are. It's just that uh, when you have more diversity at the decision-making table, different issues will be brought up and different solutions will be offered. And I think this pandemic has showed that our lack of investment in a lot of the issues that women often advocate for has harmed our economy, harmed our country, and harmed our safety. Uh, Paid leave should have been the law of the land a decade ago. Uh, We should have nurses and testing at every 
school in America. These are ideas that I've been pushing for a decade that many women share, but sometimes male leadership does not put these priorities on their top 10 list. And so we still don't have equal pay for equal work. We still don't have affordable daycare. We still don't have universal pre-K in the whole country. Like these are challenges that we must meet. And unfortunately, oftentimes, our male leaders don't feel as passionately as you and I might feel because we see how important early child education is because we see that our children need to have their parents home for that first three months so that there can be bonding, so that there can be real early childhood education and, and that nurturing environment. We know that if they were in pre-K, that whole year they'd be being socialized. They'd be getting more access to numbers and books and have full-time well-qualified people teaching them. These are the things we know. And because we don't, we don't have enough of us being heard on these issues, they're still not law yet. And it's so that's the reason. And so it's not that we don't love our male friends and we don't love our male leaders because we do, but over time, they don't necessarily feel the passion and the priorities that women do. And as a consequence, we have really been kicked in the butt because of this pandemic and things would have been so much different if we had had more progress on more issues that oftentimes our female representatives are the ones championing. I could not agree with you more. And it's just because we see things, you know, everyone sees things with the benefit of their own experiences. And I'll, I'll give you one example. We're talking about police reform. We're in this moment of reckoning around the country. One thing I don't hear enough of is that at the NYPD, only 1% of its budget goes to the detectives who investigate sex crimes and crimes against children put That's together. Horrible. That is horrible. It, like, it can't even, it seems it's crazy. Horrible. Right? And yeah. ju- just to see it is to already be on your way to a solution, but you have to be, you have to be looking for it to yeah. see it, to say, you know, these crimes are a priority for me. And that is looking at how we define public safety and we should define it so much more broadly than we do today. Well, thank you, Tali. This has been a joy, and uh, I look forward to seeing you, and good luck in your race. And uh, I I really hope that you can get where you want to go, because I think you have a lot of great ideas to help people with. Thank you so much, Kirsten. Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers for Tali and Senator Gillibrand's appearance on the show does not constitute a political endorsement. I am running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tally4da.com to learn more about my campaign. And be sure to join us for the next installment of our Women's History Month interview series. Next week, I'll be joined by Tanya Selvaratnam, author of the new memoir, Assume Nothing, which tells the story of her experience of intimate partner violence. I'm Tali Farhadian Weinstein. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time on Hearing. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards 
from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.